A video version of this podcast is available at AboundingJoy.com and also on our YouTube pages. Hey, my name's Steve Hall, and I want to thank you for joining our Bible study today. Before we get into today's Bible study, I would like to invite you to come to check out our Standing Firm Bible Study class in person. We're at Fairview Baptist Tabernacle in Sweetwater, Tennessee. We meet in the downstairs fellowship hall of the auditorium building at 10.15 a.m. on Sunday mornings immediately after the 9 o'clock worship service. Here's a little map for you. See the little red lines? <laughs> Notice if you're in the auditorium, just follow those red arrows. If you're in the back, go straight down that hallway behind you to the stairwell. If you're near the front of the auditorium, you can go out the left door, and I mean left as you're sitting in the auditorium looking toward the pulpit and the choir. Go to your left, go out that door, all the way down to the end of the hall, keep to your left, all the way down to the stairwell, and then turn right and go down the stairwell. We meet in the fellowship hall around the tables near the kitchen downstairs. If you have trouble with stairs, there are men driving golf carts near the entrance to the auditorium building at the crossover there who will be glad to give you a ride to a door that enters the building on our level, so you won't have to do any steps at all. We're a co-educational class, men and women both invited. We're for all ages, doesn't matter how old or how young. Children and youth are certainly welcome, but some children and youth actually prefer to go to the children and youth classes, which meet at the same time we meet, more on their level. Dress, totally casual. Class members are certainly encouraged to participate in the Bible study, ask questions, engage in conversation. But listen, if you happen to be kind of shy, we promise we're not going to embarrass you. We're not going to ask you to read. We're not going to ask you to pray. We're not going to ask you any specific questions directed to you. It isn't unusual for class members who are kind of shy just to not say anything at all once class gets started. So that's your choice. So I'm just saying, please don't feel intimidated if you happen to be the shy type. I know sometimes the first meeting is kind of tough for the shy people. But there's never been a time when it's been more important for God's people to meet in small Bible study fellowship groups in order to encourage each other. We've got to stand firm in his truth. We've got to stand firm on his word. These are very confusing days we're living in. You know that. So we'd love for you to join us and just see for yourself what God's doing in our class. If you'd like more information... Go to AboundingJoy.com. There's the web address right there on the screen. You can click on the Standing Firm Bible Class menu item when you get there. You may want to hit pause right now or do a screen save to get make sure you get the spelling right, but you can learn more information about us there. Now, here's today's Bible study. I hope and pray it helps you grow stronger in our Lord Jesus Christ and in your knowledge of His Word and of His will for your life. Well, hey guys, thanks for joining me in Bible study again today. We've reached Romans chapter 3. We're finally to chapter 3. When we get to chapter 3, we find the Apostle Paul answering some objections that others might bring up. Actually, probably objections that people have already brought up. He's been doing this for several years now. He's probably heard all of these things more than once. But he's talking about objections that might come up based on what he's already written in chapters 1 and 2. Paul has said some things that might cause some people to jump to conclusions that are just very, very wrong conclusions, but to those people, it seemed like a logical conclusion. He has also said some things that his enemies find very easy to twist to their advantage, they think, 
to try to make Paul look foolish or maybe to try to make him look doctrinally dangerous or something. We're all susceptible to that. You realize that, right? We're all susceptible to the danger of jumping to conclusions. When we hear other people say certain things, our brains start working and we think, well, if they said this, maybe they mean this. (laughs) We're also susceptible to having others jump to conclusions about us when we say certain things. It happens to teachers all the time. When we teach, people try to assimilate what's been said and they draw conclusions that sometimes are just wrong, but it works both ways. We can, we can reach wrong conclusions about others. Others can reach wrong conclusions about us. And Paul certainly had to deal with that. For example, if I were to say that I believe very obviously, I think most of you will agree with me, that the Bible teaches very clearly that wives are to be submissive to their husbands just as a sample teaching. There are many, many people out there who will jump to a conclusion. (laughs) They'll think, wow, I bet that guy is emotionally and psychologically abusing his wife. (laughs) In some people's eyes, they'd probably think, it's probably a pretty good indicator that I may be guilty of physical abuse as well. You know, it just seems like a logical conclusion to them. Because in their minds, the idea of a wife being submissive to her husband seems like something from the dark ages. You know, that's just, what? What? How could you believe such a thing? It's horrific in some people's minds. They just don't understand it, and they jump to the wrong conclusions. If some people heard me say that I reject the idea that somehow over billions and billions of years, higher life forms like human beings evolved very naturally by chance from lower life forms, if some people heard me say I reject that, they would conclude, well, that guy must be a Neanderthal. <laughs> that guy's anti-science. That's the only thing they can see. You see, they're not thinking very well, but they think they are. <laughs> it happens all the time. Years ago, I asked a man if he were a Christian. I had just met him. We were chatting. I asked if he were a Christian. He responded by asking me if I spoke in tongues. <laughs> and when I said, well, no, God's not giving me that gift, he concluded, On the basis that I did not speak in tongues, these were his words. He said, well, don't tell me you're a Christian. (laughs) In his mind, uh, the conclusion had to be, if you didn't speak in tongues, then the natural conclusion was you must not be a Christian. One person whom I love very much concluded that I must not be a Christian when he found out I voted for Donald Trump (laughs) because it seemed logical to him that surely no genuine Christian could possibly vote for such a self-centered, narcissistic, profane man. You know, it seemed like a logical conclusion to him. I, don't th- I think he was trying to be honest about it. He just didn't see how I could possibly be a Christian. By the way, if I could chase that rabbit for just a little bit, I may have shared this with you before, but the illustration I've always used to try to help people with that decision is this. Suppose I were to need brain surgery, and they told me I had a choice between one of two people to do the surgery. I only had two people I could choose from. I could choose a man who happened to be one of the world's finest brain surgeons, had a sterling reputation of being a great brain surgeon, very careful, a lot of success. But he's a very profane man. He he curses all the time. He's a womanizer, has a very ungodly lifestyle. On the other hand, I could also choose my pastor, Holly Miller. (laughs) He's a wonderful, godly man who loves the Lord, very gracious, very kind, very loving. Who do you think I'm going to choose? <laughs> well, I think you know. I mean, I love Holly Miller. There's no way I'm trusting him with a scalpel digging into my brain. <laughs> you know, that's just not going to happen. <laughs> 
sometimes we have to make selections based on what we think is the best man for the job, even though he may have some serious issues. On the other hand, if I were trying to select a man to be my pastor, totally different thing. You see my point? I wasn't voting for Donald Trump as a pastor. I think he would make a lousy pastor. Nobody would want him as a pastor. Might not even want him as a neighbor. But he was the right man at the time for the court appointments that needed to be made and other decisions that needed to be made. I hate to think where we'd be if Hillary had been making those appointments. Anyway, we could go on and on. If you're going to be a serious Christian in the world we live in today, listen, get ready. Get ready to be misunderstood. Get ready to be mischaracterized. Get ready to be accused by non-Christians especially, but sometimes even by our brothers and sisters, our Christian brothers and sisters who just misunderstand. Listen, guys, we have to, this is very important in the days we're living in. Listen to me. We have to learn to have thick skins. We have to learn to not be so easily upset, so easily hurt, or so easily offended when someone draws wrong conclusions about us, because they probably will. Sometimes they're doing it intentionally. Sometimes it's just faulty thinking on their part. But we can expect that kind of thing to happen. Paul knew that some people were going to misrepresent him. He knew that some people would jump to the wrong conclusions about what he's just said. Most likely, he's already heard these things. I said that earlier, I think. He's already heard these people come to these bad conclusions earlier in his ministry. He knows that some of the people in Rome who may have read this letter this far, the first couple of chapters, they may be jumping to the same conclusions. So in the first eight verses of chapter three, he deals with some of them. So let's read this now after that long introduction. Remember, this is God's word. So listen carefully. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what's the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. As it's written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? Why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying? Their condemnation is just. Once again, we're in another difficult passage of Scripture here. Not easy to understand this, so let's work our way through it carefully and see if we can get what he's saying here. In verse 1, he's dealing with one objection that people might make. Some people were thinking and saying, okay, if there's no partiality with God, if both Jews and Gentiles are in the same boat when it comes to salvation, if both Jews and Gentiles are both facing the wrath of God, then Paul must be teaching that being a Jew is pretty meaningless, pretty insignificant. If the Jews are not the favored people of God, if they're not saved just because they're Jews, Paul must be saying there's no point, no advantage at all to being a Jew. But Paul's not saying that. And in verse 2, he answers it very quickly. He says, you're jumping to conclusions. That is a bad conclusion. That's not what I'm teaching. He says, in fact, there is a great advantage to being a Jew. And he points out 
He said, to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. That word oracle may be a strange word to some of you. It translates a Greek word, logion, which is derived from the word logos. You may have recognized see the similarity there, which means the word. So in the Bible, logion always refers to words of God himself as he spoke them through his men who wrote the Old Testament. The English word oracle, by the way, comes from a Latin word. That's why it looks so different. Oraculum, which refers to a divine announcement or a prophecy. So it's just Paul's way of saying one of the main advantages of being a Jew is the fact that God chose to give the world his word through you, the Jewish people. They had God's book. It was a tremendous advantage to them if they would just listen to it. <laughs> we might get close to understanding where they are and what they're think, what kind of thinking is going on if, and their objection here if we said, you know, being a Baptist doesn't guarantee that you have eternal life, you know. And someone might say, well, what, what's the point of being a Baptist then? Why should I be baptized? What's the point? And we might quickly say, oh, there's a huge point. As a Baptist, you have a wonderful opportunity to hear God's word preached and taught. You have a wonderful opportunity to worship God with others in spirit and truth. You have a wonderful opportunity to fellowship with people who love Jesus. Being in a place where we can hear and know God's truth, it's a tremendous advantage. Yeah, just like the Jews. You see, you see the analogy there? So Paul is not saying there's absolutely no advantage in being a Jew. He's just saying being a Jew does not mean you're automatically saved. Jews have the same sin problem as the Gentiles have. By the way, did you notice here at the beginning of this verse, he said, first of all, but then he, it sounds like he's about to start a list, but he doesn't. He just gives one advantage. But actually, uh, he's got a list in mind. And eventually, after a long while, he's going to come back to these advantages much later in the book, chapter nine. When he gets to chapter nine, he's going to add to this list. And I don't want us to go into detail with the rest of the list right now. Paul's not doing that here, and we don't have time for that. But we could at least have a quick look at it. If you want to see the rest of it, this is in chapter 9, verse 4. They're Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So there were great advantages to being a Jew, but being Jews did not mean they didn't have to repent of their sins or that they somehow received eternal life automatically just because they were descended from Abraham without repentance, without faith in Jesus. Okay, in verse 3, he brings up another objection. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? God promised salvation for the Jews. His salvation is referred to over 60 times in the Psalms alone. Let's look at a few of them. The Lord lives, and blessed be my rock, and exalted be the God of my salvation. May we shout for joy over your salvation. In the name of our God, set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? May all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say evermore, God is great. Oh, come, let's sing to the Lord. Let's make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. The Lord is my strength and my song. He's become my salvation. So it's stressed all through Scripture, through the Old Testament. This is God's promise. He's their salvation. But listen, even in the Old Testament, God made it clear salvation was for those who loved him 
who trusted him, who were repentant. He makes that clear many places in the Old Testament. For example, Psalm 97, O you who love the Lord, hate evil. That's repentance, turning away from sin. Hate evil. He preserves or saves the lives of his saints. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. And so down through the ages, down through the centuries, some have been saved. There has always been a remnant, a remnant of true believers who really did love God, who really were trusting him, who really were looking forward to his salvation. They had repented of their sins. They were trusting God. But if Paul's correct in teaching that repentance and faith are necessary for salvation, most of the Jewish people have not been saved. They were trusting their genealogies. They were trusting their biological descendancy from Abraham. So people were asking, well, if we're not already saved, does that mean God didn't keep his promise? Didn't he promise to be our salvation? And in verse 4, he answers in the strongest possible way to express a negative in the Greek language. He's saying, in essence, of course God keeps his promises. Don't be silly. It's absolutely foolish to say he would not keep his promises. So he says, by no means let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it's written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. It is unthinkable that God would not keep his promises. It doesn't matter if the Jews got it wrong. It doesn't matter if they weren't faithful. God certainly is faithful. God can be trusted. Paul wrote to Titus in chapter 1, verse 2, God never lies. God's faithful. God always keeps his word. Did you notice in verse 4 he's quoting from the Old Testament? That last part, that you may be justified, talking about God, in your words and prevail when you are judged? That's right out of Psalm 51. Do you remember what Psalm 51 is all about? Psalm 51 is that famous psalm in which David finally comes clean. He'd committed adultery with Bathsheba. He had murdered her husband, Uriah, and he'd spent a lot of time and effort trying to cover it all up. And then God sent Nathan, the prophet, and God brings David to genuine repentance. And then God uses David to write the 51st Psalm. Let's read some of it. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And then here's the part that Paul quotes in Romans chapter 3. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. You see the context here? King David himself messed up big time. He sinned horrifically. But finally, God brought him to repentance. And he says, in essence, I certainly cannot justify my sinful behavior. I have blown it. I have sinned. But you, Lord, your words are justified. Your judgment is certainly justified. You are right. I am wrong. And Paul's telling the Romans and us, what David realized is something we must all realize. We have sinned and we can't justify ourselves. But God's words and God's judgment are totally justified. Men may lie. Men do lie. Men may try to justify their own bad deeds with lies. But even if the whole world, is what Paul's saying, even if every human being in every part of the world agrees with the lie, 
If they all say, oh, no, no, this is, this is where we want to be. This is the truth. No, if God says it's a lie, it's a lie. God's word is truth. <laughs> Let me point out one more thing before we leave verse 4. I think I may have talked about this Greek phrase in the past. I'm going to say it again. This verse begins with the strongest Greek negative possible. The Greek phrase is me genoito, two words, me genoito, which means may it never be. You could translate it absolutely not, or you could translate it such a thing is unthinkable. He uses the same expression again in verse 6. The King James translators put God's name there in that negative. They use two words. They use God's name, and they use the word forbid. I don't like that. I don't like the way the King James translators translated this. And, and I think part of it has to do with my background. I grew up hearing men use that phrase the same way that the King James translators used it here as a very strong negative. But the men I heard use it were not using it in a reverent way at all. It was a very profane way. It was supposed to be a strong way of saying, no, absolutely not. But they were using God's name. They were clearly using God's name in vain. God tells us his name is holy. And we're only to use it when we're talking reverently about God, respectfully about God, or when we're talking to Him in prayer and worship. Never in a frivolous, silly way. Never as a way just to express strong disagreement or strong feelings or strong... You don't use God's name like that. Now, I know the King James translators, maybe they, maybe they meant it reverently. You know, I guess they could have meant it as shorthand for, I pray that God would never allow that to happen. That would be a reverent use of God's name. But to me, based on my upbringing, the name of God coupled with the word forbid is very similar to what we hear all the time these days. People will use the word my followed by God's name. And again, that might be used reverently. I mean, Thomas did that. You remember when Thomas saw Jesus? You remember when, when Jesus first appeared to the disciples, Thomas wasn't there? <laughs> and, and they said, Thomas, we've seen him. He's alive. Thomas said, I don't believe it. You're mistaken. You've either seen a vision or somebody that looked like him or something, but I, yeah, I saw him dead. He's, he couldn't possibly be alive. And then, and then Jesus appeared to Thomas too. You remember this. And when Thomas realized who he was, that Jesus really had risen from the dead, he worshiped him. And these are the words he used, my Lord and my God. And there's the words, my God, in a very reverent way. But most people today, when they use it, they're not using it as an expression of reverence to God. They're using it just to express a strong feeling. God's name's holy. But in any case, it's not here in the Greek at all. Meganoito. God's name's not there. I just think we need to be very careful and very thoughtful in the way we use God's name. When we get to verses 5, 6, 7, and 8, we see how Paul's enemies tried to twist his words. Let's read that again. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. Let's make a noito again. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? Why not do evil that good may come? as some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. You see what they're trying to do to Paul here? They're saying, Paul, you're telling us 
that God's getting glory when he forgives us of our sin, right? This is his great salvation. He gets to forgive us of our sin by his mercy, by his grace, and that way he gets glory. Is that what you're telling us? Now, of course, that's true. You know, some people have wondered, why did God make humans with the capacity to sin? He knew we would choose to sin. Some have even tried to argue, well, since God knew we would sin before he created us, but he created us anyway, that makes him the guilty one, which is nonsense, of course, trying to make God guilty. That's, that's silly, but it's demonic. And, it's, and some people's thinking gets really messed up here because they don't want to trust God. <laughs> now, of course, God could have created us like the angels. The angels have the capacity to live in sinlessness. He could have created us like we will be after our resurrection from the dead. We'll have the capacity to live in sinlessness then. But God had a greater plan in mind here. I don't understand it all, but he certainly gave us the capacity to sin. There's obviously a sense that if we could not have sinned, then we really could not have loved God. Have you thought about that? Not the way God wants us to love him. Because love by nature has to be a choice, right? Not forced. Forced love, that's an oxymoron. That doesn't make sense, does it? Has to be a free choice. God knew from the very beginning, before he created anything, that when he created us, he should and would get great glory for just being an awesome creator. And he should. You look at his creation. We've talked about this many times. And all we can do is be in awe of him and give him great glory. He's an incredible engineer. He's an incredible artist. He's an incredible creator. But God knew he would get even greater glory by being an awesome redeemer, a creator and a redeemer. And God gets glory in forgiving our sin. So these fools argued, well, if God gets glory by forgiving our sin, well, he'll get a lot more glory if we just sin even more. And they twisted Paul's words and argued, if God gets glory through being a redeemer, then he's not only responsible for our sin, but wrath and judgment against our sin, which he's responsible for, can't be truly just, can't be truly righteous. That was their silly arguments. At the end of verse 5, when he says, I'm speaking in a human way, he's emphasizing, I'm trying to show you how foolish this human way of so-called logic works, but it's not good logic. It's not godly logic. It's just humans trying to use some logic. They're twisting Paul's words. And Paul's saying, in effect, obviously these people are not true children of God. They're under condemnation, and their condemnation, he says, is just. Now, that doesn't mean that everything God's teaching us through Paul is easy to understand. It's just a matter of trusting God. We may not understand it all, but we must not twist it. We must not deliberately try to make him look silly because we don't understand it. We may not understand it, but we know it's true. Some of the passages we're studying in Romans, including what we're studying right now. When you first read it, you think, what? What's he trying to say here? I don't get this. It's difficult, isn't it? We have to think. We have to pray. We have to study. We have to compare Scripture with Scripture. Take some time. It's kind of interesting that the Apostle Peter saw the same things that Paul's talking about right here. Look at what Peter wrote. This is near the end of Peter's life in his second letter, chapter 3. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation. Just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you, according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters, when he speaks in them of these matters, 
There are some things in them that are hard to understand. Yes, we've noticed that, Peter. (laughs) Which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction. That's what Paul's dealing with right here in Romans 3. As they do the other scriptures. Peter was recognizing Paul's letters were part of God's holy word. So that's that's what Paul's dealing with. Peter recognized it too. It's similar to when we teach in such a way as to emphasize the sovereignty of God, for example. When we emphasize the sovereignty of God, there will be some people who will accuse us of being maybe against sharing the gospel. Or maybe they'll accuse us of being against personal responsibility. Or maybe they'll accuse us of teaching determinism or something like that. And they're either ignorant, they don't really understand what they're saying, or they're deliberately trying to create a problem, trying to misrepresent God's servants. They're teaching about the sovereignty of God. It's very common. Of course, what these people were doing to Paul, same thing some of the Pharisees are trying to do to Jesus. You remember that. They resented Jesus. They were jealous of Jesus. They despised Jesus. So what did they do? They twisted his teachings, tried to make it sound like he was saying things that he really wasn't saying. Just as one little example, Jesus taught we must worship the only true God. He, he's the only one worthy of worship, his heavenly Father. So what did they do? They twisted that to try to imply that Jesus was teaching subversion against the Roman government, against the emperor. They persuaded Pilate to crucify, and they hated him. They twisted his words. Well, maybe this would be a good place for us to stop today. I think we can safely conclude that if they did that to Paul, if they did that to Jesus, they're probably going to do that to us if we stand with Paul and Jesus. I think that makes sense. For example, if we would agree with God that homosexual behavior is sin, And if we agree with God, there's no such thing as homosexual marriage. The state may name some two men living together as homosexual marriage, but God doesn't. Then we're going to be accused of being bigoted, of hating people who identify as homosexuals. If we agree with God that he's the one who made us male and female, and that men who think they're women or women who think they're men are just confused, we'll be accused of bigotry. We'll be accused of hating so-called transgender people. If they misunderstood and misrepresented Jesus, and if they misunderstood and misrepresented Paul, I think it's safe to say they'll probably misunderstand and misrepresent us when we do our very best to stand in God's truth as Jesus and Paul did. But guys, we don't have any choice. We must stand in God's truth. We must stand firm. We need to stay in that battle till God calls us home. Okay? Let's pray. Father, thank you for Paul's example. And of course, the example of our Lord Jesus. Thank you that they kept their focus on you. Thank you that they stood firm. Lord, it just, it just we look at what Paul went through in his own personal life and it amazes us. But we thank you that you inspired him to write these words and it encourages us. Because, Lord, we know that sometimes we we get misrepresented and misunderstood and it always hurts. We don't like it and we wish we could stop it. (laughs) But, Lord, Paul had to deal with it and Jesus dealt with it. All of your kids have dealt with it who decided to stand firm in your word, in your truth. So, Lord, help us to do that. Help us to stand firm. Help us to develop thick skin. Help us to not care quite so much about what people say about us, even our brothers and sisters. Lord, that's when it hurts the most, it seems. But Lord, help us to keep our focus on you 
and to stay in this battle you've placed us in until you say it's over and call us home. We want to bring you a lot of glory any way you choose. In Jesus' name, amen.